The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 23. Yes. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, we are now in Leviticus 25, 8 through 22. This is uh, entitled The Year of Jubilee, Part 1. Verse 8, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession, and if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another." According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase his price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow in the, or, nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest." The year of Jubilee, as detailed in this chapter, is filled with enough exciting details and enough references pointing to a fulfillment of its precepts in Christ that one would think what is detailed here would be sufficient to be a valid and remarkable passage all by itself. For the most part, everything about the year is recorded right here in this chapter. There are few references to it elsewhere, but there is little else about the year than what is found right here in chapter 25. Unfortunately, like other passages which people manipulate in order to sell books or tickle the ears, the same is true with this passage as well. 
One of the popular teachings on this is the cycle of Jubilees going back to creation itself. And this is based on a book known as the Book of Jubilees, otherwise known as Little Genesis. It is a pseudepigraphal book, meaning it is a false writing from about the 2nd century B.C., and which claims to follow sets of jubilees or periods of 49 years from creation and which continue throughout history. From this, modern writers have developed an entire theology on the years of jubilee in order to predict when things will happen in the future. In other words, they are practicing divination and calling it Christianity. There are a few problems with this. First among them is that the year of Jubilee was initiated by the Lord through Moses for when the people came into the land of Israel. The book of Jubilees has nothing to do with the truth of the Bible. Secondly, nobody knows when the first year of Jubilee was observed or if it was actually ever observed. The Bible says nothing about its observance all through the rest of its passages. Third, as this year of Jubilee cycle only pertains to the land of Israel, the question is, do years of Jubilee continue on during periods of exile? No, it cannot be. The purpose of Jubilee is restoration. That cannot occur during exile. For these reasons, it is absurd to attempt to guess what year a year of Jubilee would be. We have no starting year. We have gaps in Israel's time in the land due to exile, and Israel isn't observing these cycles now that they are back in the land. If you're curious about whether these books which are out there on this subject have even a hint of truth in them, I will tell you, they don't. Save your money and try reading your Bible. And I'm talking about books that have been put out in recent years that have sold millions of copies. One guy wrote a book, and he was so convinced that he could predict the future, he had a copy sent to every person in Congress. And it didn't come out as he planned, and guess what? We look like a bunch of idiots again. That is what happens when we try to predict the future. Fourth, the year of Jubilees points to Christ and his work. It is fulfilled in what he has done. Therefore, the prophetic picture of what this year looked forward to is over. There is no expected future fulfillment of it scheduled, just expected results because of his completed work. Our text verse comes from Galatians chapter 5. It is the first verse. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Paul says that the law, meaning the law of Moses, is a yoke of bondage. Its principal sign was that of circumcision. The one thing above all else that made a person show that he was an adherent to the law was that of circumcision. But in Galatians, Paul eviscerates the argument that we somehow need to be circumcised in order to be pleasing to God. In fact, he argues vehemently against it. In the very next verse, he says that for those who get themselves circumcised in order to show off their religiosity, to them Christ profits nothing. Instead of drawing nearer to God, they fall from grace, become a debtor to the entire law, and stand condemned before the law. In order to avoid that legalistic trap, he tells us to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He has freed us from all bonds and all chains. The captives have been set free. Let us trust in this and learn what it means to observe the year of Jubilee in Christ, who is our freedom. These are the things we will hope to accomplish in the next few sermons, which comprise the rest of Leviticus 25. 
It is a great passage waiting to be unwrapped, and that is because it points to a great, great Savior. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple thoughts for you today. The first is restoration. As it was, so it shall be. Verses 8 through 17. Verse 8. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. With these words, a new development is introduced, but it is still following the same overall theme which was initiated in verse 1. There the Lord spoke to Moses, and with no new introductory statement, what will be presented then continues the same theme. Here we have the same type of synecdoche, which was found in verse 2315. The term Shabbatot Shanim, or Sabbaths of Years, signifies weeks of years. The single Sabbath stands for the whole. And so the people are being instructed to build upon what was described concerning the Sabbath years in verses 1 through 7. There was to be a remembrance of the Sabbath years because they were to lead to an even greater event after the observance of seven of them. This then finds a parallel in the Feast of Weeks of Leviticus 23. There was a particular Sabbath, after which came the Feast of Firstfruits. From the day after that Sabbath, there was a counting of seven Sabbaths, which would bring the people to another particular day, thus commencing the Feast of Weeks. The same pattern, but in Sabbaths of years, is to be seen here. Verse 8 continues, seven times seven years. This explains the meaning of the previous words. A Sabbath of years is a period of seven years. That amount is then to be multiplied by seven of these periods. Verse 8 continues, And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. The pattern here follows directly along with that of the Feast of Weeks. But instead of days leading to weeks of days, it is years leading to weeks of years. There was to be a counting of seven sets of sabbatical years, totaling 49. At the end of this period of time, the Lord next directs Moses concerning what is expected. Verse 9, Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee. The trumpet referred to here is the shofar. It's exactly like what we have right in front of us. It signifies a cornet or a curved horn that gives out a very clear sound. The word comes from shofar, which signifies beautiful, as in fair or comely. It was first seen in the sounding of it in Exodus 19 and 20 at the giving of the law, and it has not been seen since. Further, this is the last time that it is going to be seen in the Pentateuch, meaning the five books of Moses. Curiously, then, the shofar ushered in what began the law, and the shofar is used to signify that which reveals the ending of the law as well. The word translated here as jubilee is teruah. It was first seen in Leviticus 23, verse 24, and it signifies a shout or blast of war or of alarm or of joy. In the case of this sounding, it is to be one of great joy. This, in turn, is from the word ruah, which gives a sense of splitting the ears with sound, such as in a great shout or sounding. The note was to resound throughout all of the land of Israel. The Hebrew words are literally translated then, cause to resound the shofar of loud sound. Verse 9 continues, to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. This time is one halfway through the year of the redemptive calendar, which started each year in the springtime. However, it is the first month of the creation or civil calendar. It is on the tenth day of the seventh month, which is the same day as, verse 9 continues, on the Day of Atonement. Beyom HaKippurim. In day the atonements. It is plural. 
on the most sacred day of the annual calendar, the day which people's sins were atoned for and full restoration with the Lord was granted for their many sins, they were to observe this special sounding of shofars. This rather clearly shows that the true liberty which this year of liberty looks forward to could only take place after the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 continues. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout your land. Actually, it's throughout all of your land. I want to make sure I add in the all there. The blast of the shofar was to be heard everywhere, meaning that it was a directive for every locality to be prepared to sound. It may even be that every man was asked to blow his own shofar if he had one. The reason for this will become obvious, but in short, the day would affect everyone, so everyone should be reminded by hearing it. Verse 10, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. One of the most difficult aspects of this observance to pin down is the meaning of the 50th year. Scholars note that it is now the 49th year. And therefore, some say that the cycle is actually only 49 years and is simply rounded up to the number 50. But that doesn't square at all with the intent of the passage. But the 50th year, if using the redemption calendar, doesn't begin until the spring. So how could the freedoms mentioned be proclaimed here and yet not take effect until the next spring? If the Sabbath year cycle was based on the creation, civil calendar, meaning in the seventh month, then it would make more sense. But why then call it the seventh month? In short, it would be to maintain consistency of what each month was for the standard redemptive calendar. If you're confused, don't worry. For 3,500 years, this has confused the reader and it remains a very complicated part of the law. Regardless, the 50th year was to be considered as one consecrated or set apart as one of liberty. The word doror is used here. It has only been seen once so far in Exodus chapter 30 to describe the liquid myrrh of the holy anointing oil. It means free-flowing. The myrrh flowed freely from the plant rather than it being cut to induce flow. Such is the idea here. Spontaneity of outflow and thus liberty. The word won't be used again in the books of Moses, but it will be referred to in Isaiah chapter 61, Jeremiah 34, and Ezekiel 46, all in relation to this chapter's instructions. Verse 10 continues, it shall be a jubilee for you. The word translated here as jubilee is not the same as in verse 9. It is yobel. It signifies the ram's horn as an instrument and thus the festival which the ram's horn introduces. Literally, the verse reads, it shall be a ram's horn for you. The horn stands in place of what it accomplishes. Yobel comes from yabal, meaning to bear along or to lead. As the ram's horn is given a long, continuous blast, carrying along its message, so the jubilee is introduced. Verse 10 continues, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Two separate aspects of freedom are given in these words. The first is freedom of land, and the second is freedom of person. This is to demonstrate to the people two fundamental truths. One, it is the Lord who is the true owner of the land, and two, that it is the Lord who is the true owner and possessor of their souls. Notwithstanding their temporary ownership of either land or person, in the end, the Lord is ultimately who all are accountable to, from the poorest inhabitant even to the king in Jerusalem. 
In a greater regard, then, it is a year of restoration. On the Day of Atonement, the people's sins and uncleanness were covered over, thus restoring them to a right relationship with Him. Likewise, this 50th year was intended to undo all of the entanglements of life which came through human interactions. By granting this year, things were brought back to their original state at the beginning of their time in the land. The verses from 11 through 34 deal with the first half of the equation, the land as the Lord's possession. From verse 35 through 55, the subject of people as the Lord's possession is then explained. Verse 11, that 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. It is again clear that this is not a number simply rounded up from 49, but rather it is speaking of the 50th year. The 49th year was a sabbatical year without sowing or reaping. That was made explicit in verses 1 through 7. Now, that is to be repeated. Verse 11 continues, In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. As in verse 5, the two commands are given again. The admonition to not reap what grows of its own accord means to reap for the sake of a harvest, including storage. Rather, they could reap it for individual consumption only. And further, anyone could do so. The land was totally freed up for any and for all alike. Likewise, the grapes of the Nazarite, meaning the untrimmed vines, were not to be gathered. Again, this means gathered as a harvest. They were to be left as common food for any and for all. Here again, we see the truth that Jehovah is the Lord of the land. Its soil, its growth, its harvests, the dwellings, the seasons it enjoys, the roads where people walked, everything ultimately belongs to him. He has the final say because he is the ultimate authority to be deferred to. Verse 12, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. This is also a repeat thought as for that of the Sabbath year. As a yobel or jubilee, the produce of the ground was consecrated as holy. Therefore, people could go out to the fields and remove what was needed for the day. But they were not to store up the produce as one would in a year of harvest. The Lord had promised to provide, and the people were to trust in his provision and to confidently gather that which they needed. It is almost a year-long reminder of the times when the manna was given. The people were to gather and to trust, and on the seventh day they were to rest. If we just stop here for a moment and contemplate what is going on, we can see then why this is so important. There is an amazing and an intricate cycle of life which is being presented in these days and years of remembrance. They begin with the Sabbath day, which is consistently held as the great reminder of God's creative and redemptive hand among the people. Each time the Sabbath has been presented since Exodus 16, it has given us one insight after another into the accomplished work of the Lord, meaning Jehovah, and concerning the coming work of Christ. From the Sabbath day came the Sabbath month, the seventh month, which detailed all three of the fall feasts. Christ's birth into humanity was the first, his atoning death was the second, and his dwelling among and in his people was highlighted in these three fall feasts. And then from there came the Sabbath year. It looks forward to a time when the Lord would tend to the people's needs apart from any work. They could rest in him and find that he will provide for them apart from their effort. And those Sabbath years were to accumulate into the great year of Jubilee, where debts would be released, properties would be restored, the land would produce on its own, and captives would be set free. A total restoration of all things was prefigured in this grand year of Jubilee. 
It is reflective of the words of Paul concerning our position in Jesus Christ right now. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You can see all of the entanglements of life are removed at the coming of Christ when he comes into us. But our position in Christ now is only anticipatory as a taste of what will be realized in its fullness at the restoration of all things. Christ Jesus' words found in Revelation 21, verse 5, reflect this. It says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. If we look at the Sabbath years picturing the millennium, which we did last week, where man rests from his striving with God, we can look at the year of Jubilee as a step beyond that, where total restoration of all things is realized. Each step of the Sabbath cycle is intended to elevate the people of Israel to an understanding that the Lord has something better awaiting his redeemed. The process must go through to its completion, but when it is accomplished, it will be glorious. Think it through now with these sevens. The seventh day Sabbath acknowledges the Lord's creation and redemption. The seventh month is an acknowledgement of his incarnation, his atoning death, and his dwelling in his people. The seventh year Sabbath anticipates his millennial reign, and the year of Jubilee anticipates total restoration of what was lost at the very beginning. All of it, every detail looks to the Lord and his work in the grand plan of redemption. From the creation and fall, each step is fulfilled in Jesus Christ until we are again in the presence of God. Verse 13, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. Though seemingly a verse about reacquisition of land, the words here point directly to Jesus Christ. How so? It is because of this law of entailment that the people's rights could never be taken away from them. The government or king had no authority to do so. The banks had no authority to do so. And the priests themselves had no authority to do so. The land belonged to the one or his descendant, his representative, to whom it originally landed. The wisdom of the law led to meticulous preservation of family registers as evidence to establish ancestral lines and thus rights. And so, both the tribe and family of Christ were readily discernible at his coming. Pick up the scroll, look for the name, check the inheritance, voila, a potential for Messiah can be confirmed. And we see this recorded in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. All of this is recorded right here. It started right here in the year of Jubilee. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The ancestral roles would be used for many things, but they were maintained most especially because of the exacting and ingenious provisions of Leviticus 25. With these records destroyed, along with the temple, in A.D. 70, a truth must be discerned readily from that fact. 
Messiah has come. No other biblical conclusion is possible. Verse 14, And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. Four times in this chapter, the amit, or neighbor, will be seen. The term doesn't literally mean a neighbor, but a fellow of Israel in general. It is used only 13 times total, and this is the last time that it is going to be used until the book of Zechariah, where its final use will be found in a prophecy about the shepherd savior, Christ. It is a word which is always used concerning dealings between two people which should be kept fair and honorable. To oppress one another would be to overvalue the property by the seller or to undervalue it by the buyer. There was to be only straight dealing between the parties as they agreed to a fair sale of the land. To avoid such a thing as much as possible, the Lord gives clear guidance for such sales. Verse 15, according to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. When Israel finally gets to the land of promise, they will divide it up by lot and within territory set apart for each tribe. No land was to pass permanently from one tribe to the next. It was to remain forever as a part of the tribe to which it was originally granted. However, if Al from Asher bought a plot belonging to Ned from Naphtali, unless it went back to its owner at the Jubilee, there would be mixture and thus confusion in the land. The possession of each family then was an inalienable right, but it could be sold temporarily. Therefore, the value would begin to be set based on the number of years since the last Jubilee. Thus, Al would say, the Jubilee was 21 years ago, and so I am buying the next 29 years of owner's rights. Verse 15 continues, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. In turn, Ned would say, okay, Al, my new friend and pal, there are 29 years left, and so I'm going to sell you the land based on that. But Al, knowing the law, says, yes, Ned, but I can't sow and reap on a Sabbath year. You need to first deduct those, I fear. The word for crops in this verse is tebua. It signifies the produce of the land. As no produce was harvested on a Sabbath year, it was not to be counted in the reckoning of the sale. That was seen in Exodus 23, where tabua was used to explain exactly this. Here's what it says. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year, that word produce is tabua, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. The amount of expected produce and the years when produce could be gathered were a part of dealing fairly and not oppressing a neighbor. Ned was looking like he might be taking advantage of things, but Al was not one to be easily misled. Unless Al can overestimate the size of the expected crop each year, the land will go for exactly what it is worth. Al refrains from any such fish stories, and a fair deal is transacted. Verse 16, according to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. The sales price is not based on the land, but on what the land produces. Therefore, the number of and expected size of crops is what the sale is to be based on. In the end, the land belongs to the Lord. He has given it to a tribe and to a family. Therefore, 
they only have the right to sell it for what it produces, and the buyer may only purchase those years of produce. If each year was worth 10 units, and there were 20 years left after deducting the Sabbath years, then the price would be 200 units. If there were 30 left, the price would be 300 units, and so on. What must be considered then is that in buying the crops, there is the truth that if the Lord blesses the land, there will be an abundance of crops, a great deal for the buyer. But if there is a famine, there will be minimal crops, a loss to the buyer. As it is the Lord who ultimately directs these, then one is actually placing his faith in the provision of the Lord. What is this picturing? Think it through. Crops are a harvest. What are you willing, as a Christian, to sow into the harvest which the Lord has set before you? How many will come to Christ because of your efforts? That's what's being seen right here. Think of Billy Graham. 200 million people he evangelized. He went to Korea, and he preached to so many. So many people came that they had to close down Kimpo Airport, and he preached to six million people, and they estimate that 90-some percent of the country watched on TV as he preached to those people at Kimpo Airport. That is the largest missionary-sending nation on this planet today is South Korea because of people like Billy Graham that did the work, told about Jesus Christ, and it was all pictured right back here, right back here in the year of Jubilee. That's what we're looking at. What are you willing to sow into the harvest? Are you going to trust the Lord and say his provision is going to be bountiful for me? Or are you going to say, well, we might have a famine and I better not sow today because tomorrow I might need this. It's totally up to you. But your reward will come from what the Lord provides and how you use it. Verse 17, therefore, you shall not oppress one another. A completely different word is used than in verse 14. Rather than oppress, it should say mistreat. This then shows the gravity of the Lord's words. In essence, you have oppressed and you have mistreated and me you did not fear. The varying of the verb is its own type of warning that there will be consequences for violating a precept which should be held as sacred. And the reason for this is, verse 17 continues, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord your God. Despite the rather long chapter, it being 55 verses long, the name of the Lord is used rather sparingly, only six times, and only three of them are in this declaratory form. Therefore, when he declares it, the words he speaks are to be taken to heart and carefully acted upon. This is especially true where he begins with stating their God was to be feared and that he is Jehovah, their God. Everything about the sale of the property is based upon the year of release. And the year of release is based upon the sounding of the trumpet on the Day of Atonement. The Lord's forgiveness and covering is key to initiate this process. Hence, to mistreat one another is to fail to recognize the Lord's goodness over one's own wrongdoing. And yet, we as Christians have the full realization and the complete forgiveness of every debt in our lives in Christ. But we still mistreat one another, and we are unwilling to overlook being mistreated. If there is one truth which is seen time and time and time again, it is that Christians do a much better job of oppressing and mistreating one another than the world at large could ever hope to attain. The year of Jubilee when all is restored, a time when things passed or brought back again. Come and see, look to the workings of the Lord, what he has done for the sons of men. 
What was lost is now open for his redeemed. The marvel of paradise stands before us. We were shut out forever, so it seemed, but then God sent, yes, God sent his son, Jesus. And in his life and work, all is made new. Heaven's access for us is safely secured. Marvelous things for us, God did do in the sending of his son, Jesus, our Lord. Our second thought today is providing for the Sabbath year. It's verses 18 through 22. Verse 18, you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them. Although these words are certainly inclusive of all of the Lord's statutes and judgments, they're more specifically intended to refer to everything in this chapter since verse 2. The people have been given specific commands and the Lord expects them to be adhered to. Having said that, like the Sabbath year observance, there is nothing in Scripture to show that the people ever observed a year of Jubilee. Like the failure to give the land its Sabbath rest, failing to observe the 50-year Jubilee was probably another of the multitude of reasons for the people's punishment and exile. This can almost be inferred from the next words. Verse 18 continues, and you will dwell in the land in safety. This is something that rarely occurred. Times of peace are noted in the Old Testament, but times of being hemmed in by enemies are as frequent as the turn of the next page. The people failed to heed the Lord, and the land was a very unsafe place. As a major land bridge between great nations, Israel's only hope of not being entered and crushed was to act in accord with God who carefully placed them there. When Israel danced, it was always on the edge of a very sharp sword, and this was intentional. There is a price for obedience, and there is a price for disobedience. The Lord need do nothing but withdraw his hand of restraint, and the enemies would come flooding in. He withdrew his hand frequently over the years and generations as a means of bringing them back to their senses or as a way of punishing them for their failures. But when they were sensible and obedient, the Lord was faithful to perform his end of the bargain. Verse 19, then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. Israel isn't just dependent on border security. As a land bridge, this is certainly true. But it was, and it remains to this day, wholly dependent on the favor of the winds and the rains as well. Unlike Egypt, which received water all year long and which can be drawn into canals for use during the low flow season, Israel is a mountainous land. When the rains come, they quickly flow down the hills and towards the lowest elevations, eventually heading out to the seas. For crops to grow, rains would need to be on time and they would need to be consistent. The obedience of the people implied conditions would be favorable for the land to yield its fruit, even to abundance. The people would eat their fill and they would be content and safe as they did. In fact, this is one of the promised blessings found in the next chapter for obedience. The very first one, in fact. The Lord promises by himself that this will be true. But when a contrary attitude and a stiff neck was seen, correction came in fields which lay barren and unproductive. Reading the Bible only from an agricultural aspect, at times one can almost tell when the people were obedient and when they weren't. Just read the book of Ruth. But they could never say they weren't warned. The law was received, the books were written, and Moses' writings stood as a witness to them and against them that the Lord had spoken through him. What the Lord sought from them was faith leading to faithful obedience. Verse 20, And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Here the Lord, through Moses, anticipates the most obvious question that one could imagine. 
Though it is a question of very little faith, it is a valid one nonetheless for someone who simply had no comprehension of who the Lord really is. Thus, they are surely bound to ask, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If there is no plowing and sowing because the Lord has forbidden these things, then where will the food for all the people come from? And even more, what about the animals? And the eighth year, when seed would be so desperately needed for sowing that crop. If the people were restrained from sowing and gathering, how would these needs be met? Verse 21, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. This verse shows either, either the utterly ridiculous nature of the writings of Moses, or they show that what he wrote was relayed from a divine source. No other option is even credible to consider. The people were to enter Canaan in just a few weeks' time. It would be a short time after that for the Sabbath year cycle to begin. In due time, the proverbial proof would be in the pudding. Really, only a lunatic or a Democrat would promise a triple portion of something they had absolutely no control over at all. If this were not true, the result would be selecting a new leader while Moses lay at the bottom of a cliff and there would not even be one Sabbath year observed. And so to make this claim, the Lord puts his own stamp of credibility on the leader that he has selected. The fact that it would actually be 40 years before they entered, and without Moses at that, makes no difference at all at this point. The Lord has spoken. He has made the claim, and it was Moses who would have to face the consequences if they did not progress, as was originally assumed that they would. The promise then is actually a step greater than that of the giving of the manna to the people. In that, the people were told that they would receive a double portion each Friday. They were further told that it would not fill with worms and stink, like that of the other five days. The miracle of the manna proved reliable. But this would require not just an extra portion, it would require one above that. It would have to be enough to carry the people through the Sabbath year and into the next year as well. To show the exemplary nature of the promise, the Lord says that he wouldn't just provide enough to get them started in the eighth year, but it would carry them all the way through the eighth year, a true and full triple portion. Verse 22 finishes our verses today, and you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. Throughout the entire eighth year, there would be no need to eat what was harvested during the season. Instead, they would still be eating the grain of year six as the entire harvest of year eight was fully and finally being finished and gathered in. Here in this verse is a new word to close us out, yashan or old. So even though it's a new word, it's an old one at the same time. It indicates old things and it is rather rare being seen a total of just six times, two of them being in this one verse. The miracle of this promise is so great that the Lord will use the same precept again in the time of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against Jerusalem, threatening to destroy it. The Lord gave a long and beautiful reply to Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance. In that delivery, he promised to handle the situation and to give a sign to prove that his word was what accomplished the task. A portion of that reply, which I read last week as well, said, This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. 
For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. Like the crops which had taken root downward and which would bear fruit upwards for two full years, the people of Israel would likewise not be cut off. They would take root and they would bear fruit, all for the sake of the Lord's glory, which Hezekiah had sought in his time of great distress. And this is the point of the entire body of Scripture, the glory of God. Everything he did in creation and since creation is to proclaim his glory to his creatures and to invite them to share in that glory as observers of his magnificence. The year of Jubilee was given to Israel to demonstrate this glory to them, but it was also given to anticipate the coming of Christ who would take the shadow and make it substance. Christ Jesus did just that. He gave release of the land and he gave release to those held in captivity. The only bondage that remains is that of time. The redeemed of the Lord are, in fact, set free. But we must still await the time when that is realized. The sounding of that trumpet isn't far off, and it is the blessed hope of those who eagerly await his appearing. May that day be soon. The one thing about that day, though, is that there will be some who aren't going. There is a dividing line in who will hear the sound of the shofar and go and who will be ignorant of it and stuck behind. The dividing line is what each individual has done about Jesus. It is, after all, all about him. He is the point of scripture. He is the purpose of scripture from the first word to the last, from the alpha to the omega, from the aleph to the tav. It is all about Jesus Christ. He came and he lived that perfect life that we cannot live. And that is all foreshadowed right here in this small passage of the year of Jubilee. The records were maintained specifically so that we would know that when he came, he was the right person. All they needed to do was pull out the scrolls and say, yeah, this guy is from David, right? This guy is from Bethlehem. He meets the requirements. A lot of other people may have met some of the requirements too, but we can exclude them one after another because Scripture keeps whittling it down to one person who's going to do all of these things. And the main thing that he did was go to the cross of Calvary. That is the Day of Atonement for us. And that's why the Lord chose this to be proclaimed on the Day of Atonement. You can't have release without atonement first. That is it. And so the Lord came and lived his perfect life, and he gave it up in exchange for our sins, our wickedness, our evil deeds, which Bob, 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 blah, which Bob brought up at the beginning of our service today, right? He gave it all for us, and then he went into the grave. And the most incredible thing of all is that he came out of that grave. I was thinking about it yesterday, and I was simply overwhelmed thinking about it. That the body is in the grave. He's dead. As sure as can be, he is dead. And he came out. And I just kept thinking about it. And the more I think about it, the harder it is for me to figure this out. That the Lord actually did this for people like us. But this is what the Bible proclaims. And then he asks us to do something so simple that people forget to do it. Receive him. They say, oh, that's too simple. That's, they, I got to do something. There's no I in this equation. It's all about Jesus. He's done it all. So give your life to Christ. Receive him. You want to have an altar call? Billy Graham altar call? Come on up if you've received Jesus Christ. That's not necessary. We're small enough where I can see those people that will choose Jesus. But I tell you what, what a wonderful thing God has done. What an absolutely marvelous thing. Please, if you've never called on Jesus and just asked him to simply forgive you of your sins, the atoning sacrifice leads to the setting free of the captive. And from there, behold, I make all things new. Great God, wonderful Savior.
Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 61. I said that Isaiah 61 mentioned this passage. Here it is. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Wonderful stuff. Final thought before we get done. I said it already. I'm going to say it one more time. Atonement before release. You cannot be released. You cannot be restored. You cannot enter into God's paradise without the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what it proclaims. From the beginning of the Bible, man fell, and all of these Sabbath cycles are pointing one after another, every one of them, to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he finished it, but the atonement came first. And then comes paradise. And it's guaranteed. It's a freebie. Please remember that one thought. I know Mabel walked up to me and she asked me before the sermon. I'm thinking about this sermon and I'm thinking about going home and getting all the editing done and everything. She comes up and she asked me a question from Exodus chapter 16, was it? I mean, way back or no, Leviticus 12. That's what it was. And I'm thinking, oh, I didn't want to leave her without an answer. So I went and I read my old sermon and I said, here's the answer. It was a real complicated answer too. So I mean, that's Anyway, you can't remember everything, but you can remember something. The atonement must precede everything else for you. Okay, your sins are atoned for, then you get to go to heaven. Okay, call on Jesus. Next week is Leviticus 25. It's verses 23 through 32. More great things about the Jubilee to sort through. It's entitled the year of Jubilee. Part two. That'll be our 47th <laughs> Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. I got to tell you something. Every time I practice this sermon, I practice it eight times this week. I know I fumble through it like I didn't practice it once, but I practice it eight times. Every time I do, when I get to that and I say, more great things about the Jubilee to sort through the year of Jubilee. I say real loud, part two. <laughs> Jay comes to mind every day. Now that's a scary thought. Uh, our poem today is called The Year of Jubilee. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times, seven years. Just think of all the good times and the tears, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month. Let it resound. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet throughout all your land to sound. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be for you a Jubilee. And each of you shall return to his possessions so shall it be, and each of you shall return to his family. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, whether just a few or a whole whopping heap. For it is the jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. This is what you are to do. In this year of jubilee, please do heed and learn. 
each of you shall to his possession return. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. Rather, in peace with him you shall stand. According to the number of years after the jubilee you shall from your neighbor buy, and according to the number of years of crops he shall sell to you, by the number of crops you shall classify. According to the multitude of years you shall increase his price, and according to the fewer numbers of years you shall its price diminish. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of crops until they finish. Therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Walk circumspectly, therefore, on this land that you trod. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments so you are to understand and perform them, and you will dwell in safety in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, so to you I tell, and you will eat your fill, and there in safety dwell. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? I'm the Lord, so have no fear. Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, despite your fears, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, so I attest, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. Lord God, we look ahead as yet to the day when Christ comes for those already released. The moment is ahead, the hour is set, and we wait until the ticking clock has ceased. Until then, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who has restored the land and opened heaven's door. Great things through him, O oh God, you have done for us, and we shall exalt and praise you forevermore. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this just amazingly marvelous passage of Scripture. It's a passage that we get into the book of Leviticus, and we started chapter 1 all excited from those great stories of Exodus, and we think, well, maybe chapter 2 will be better. And we get to chapter 3, and we say, well, I'm just going to read this really quick and get through it, and I'm going to get on to a better book with fun stories again. And we miss the glory, the absolute glory of what is tucked away in these passages of the book of Leviticus. How marvelous it is and how wonderful it is to come to chapter 25 and to see the glory of what you have done once again in the person of Jesus. It's just amazing. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all the people that are a part of it. And we certainly lift up all of the prayer needs, the many prayer needs that we mentioned at the beginning of the church and which are unknown because I didn't mention them, but people suffering with their difficulties in life. We lift them up to you now, Lord, and we pray that you will, in your great grace and mercy, tend to them. Use your wisdom to restore them as you see fit, and we will praise you through the storm if it remains, and we will praise you through the healing if it comes. You are worthy of it either way. You are great and you are glorious, and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.